One of the things that fossil fuel companies say is that we don't understand. We're going to keep using oil because countries are going to develop and they're going to need the oil to go forward. How can the world end its use of oil if 85% of the global economy has been dependent on fossil fuels for half a century? Is it pragmatic for the United States to invest trillions of dollars on renewable energy when China continues to build new coal power plants every single week? Can the United States government scale renewables without private sector leadership from players like Elon Musk? On this episode of Some Future Day, Amy Jaffe, NYU's Director of Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab, shares a pragmatic vision surrounding the path to end the use of fossil fuel. Amy is also the author of Energy's Digital Future, an amazing book that provides policymakers with solutions to extricate the world from current energy dependencies. Amy proves to be one of the preeminent minds in this space as she provides insights surrounding fossil fuels, climate change, and geopolitics on this episode of Some Future Day. Amy, thank you for being my guest. Amy, welcome to Some Future Day. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to get into this conversation with you. How are you? I'm very good, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So I compiled some data surrounding our country as well as the rest of the world's commitment towards renewables and renewable technology. And I just want to read, I want to start by reading this off to you. I I imagine they're from solid sources. So the United States and Canada will spend a cumulative $12 trillion on renewable energy generation by 2050. Our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, he just recently stated that he, that we spent, the United States spent $100 billion over the past two years as it relates to our commitment towards the 2030 SDGs. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres recently called for a SDG stimulus package of sorts. I don't think he called it a stimulus package, but he's asking for another $500 billion annually to support the SDG initiative. And then There seems to be like a little bit of a conflict. So the United Kingdom's interior minister, Suella Braverman, said that green policies should not bankrupt the British people, and they shouldn't, in fact, increase their commitment. So it seems to me in like looking at this data and looking at this information that there's some sort of an inherent complex as it relates to the feasibility of renewables and renewable technology. All of that comes at a time where I believe from my research that the global economy has been 85% dependent on fossil fuels for the last 50 or 60 years. So I guess my question to you is, how do we reconcile this massive financial commitment on a global scale and the feasibility of actually moving the needle to reduce fossil fuels and ending the use of oil? So I think the first thing we have to do is we need to step back from the way people characterize it, like this is going to be too expensive for people, or this is what we have to do to avoid the climate crisis. And, you know, we have these sort of thematic 
political, social, cultural statements. And we have to, you know, clarify what we're talking about. Because sometimes when people talk about it that way, it gives the misimpression that we're not going to spend any money to have fossil fuels. We would only be spending this money to switch over to clean energy. And of course, we're going to have to spend money to have energy. We still have millions of people across the globe that don't have any access to any forms of energy. And so what we're really talking about is how do we alleviate poverty and meet some of the other SDG goals at the same time decarbonizing economic activity, right? So how do we do the things we need to do in a way that, you know, is not destructive to the planet? And people have come up with sort of lingo for that. Uh, There's, you know, green industrialization or green growth is one of the ways that people are thinking about it. So I think the first point I'd like to make is the following. Some things are not equivalencies. We know that every time you put a gallon of gasoline into a vehicle, every time we use oil to make plastics or whatever the function is going to be, we know that that activity, that resources immediately disappears the second we use it. And it disappears into, you know, pollution (laughs) into the atmosphere. I mean, why do we call renewables renewables? You know, once we put up a field full of solar panels or once we develop an offshore wind installation or once we use digital and AI technology to make the energy use of a building go down or to make a vehicle much more fuel efficient, that lasts for a decade or more, decades. And so we're not constantly having to drill for more, drill for more, drill for more. And, you know, the thing I like to point out to people, even when, you know, people stand up and say, oh, well, you know, we're going to have to mine for lithium for electric vehicles. Well, you know, let's not forget that once I have that battery in my car, I'm going to be able to drive around with it. I mean, I have to recharge it, but the physical metals resource is not only going to stay in my car for 10 years or maybe even slightly longer. But then when I take it out of my car and and put in a new battery, I can recycle the battery I had. Whereas when I put gasoline in my car, I use it and it's gone and it's polluted, right? So I I, I think the first step we have to think about is we're going to spend money bringing energy services to people regardless. And Actually, when I mean, I just recently did a study with a group of other scholars and specialists looking at what we call the levelized cost of energy, comparing these different resources, you know, this year and in 2030 here in the United States. And what that shows is that solar energy and some of these other energy sources are actually going to be cheaper and more economical than fossil fuels. So that begs the question, how reliable, how stable, how resilient can we build our energy system the more renewables we put into the system? You know, what do we have to do to organize it so that, you know, we have stable energy and low prices when the sun isn't shining and for onshore wind anyway, there's periods of time where suddenly for two days it's not windy in Oklahoma. So 
we know what those solutions are, but you know, organizing them and organizing them to connect to, you know, additional jobs, other kinds of co-benefits for for people in different communities, that is a, a massive job for governments. And that's where we're getting a lot of the political noise. Amy, when you mention, you keep alluding to like the politics of climate change, and that leads everyone to believe that there's like something deeper at play here. It's not just about renewable energy and investment. How would you describe this bigger ecosystem where the the energy sector is playing a significant role, but it's only one cog in this bigger system? I mean, there's just so much change happening in society in general. And a lot of that change comes from technology. People talk about the fourth industrial revolution or the fifth industrial revolution. You know, we had the first it was digital, but now it's, you know, artificial intelligence and, and, you know, taking it to yet another level. And that kind of change is dislocating. And when we're talking about on top of that, we're going to change, you know, how we use energy and and what forms of energy we're going to use. I, I don't like it when people talk about winners and losers. I like to really think about it more in the sort of way that society is going to change. So the kinds of ways we think about what we wear, what we do, what we eat is evolving. Some people, you know, don't like to learn how to work a computer. Some people don't want to have a robot car pick them up. Some people just don't want to, you know, change certain things. There are people who've worked in the coal industry for generations and they want to continue to work in the coal industry for future generations. There are other people who have dedicated themselves to driving radical and rapid change to protect nature. So it's hard to create sort of like a uniformed mission where everybody can embrace the direction we're going and feel that they are going to benefit from the changes that are coming. And those changes are coming, whether you feel passionately about climate change or whether you feel it's a hoax, you know, there are changes coming in the energy system, coming in the way people think about and address what they eat and what they wear these changes are coming and they're they're coming partly because of technology. So the story I, I like to tell is I was commissioned to be the keynote speaker in this giant technology convention they had every year in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. I'm going to be the lunch keynote speaker. And the people organizing this conclave that's in a convention center with, you know, technology booths and everything. And then there's going to be a luncheon for like 2000 people. And they're imagining that Hillary Clinton is going to be president. And so they're asking me to come and give a keynote speech about the interplay between technology and climate change. And of course, this thing is a week after the election and President Trump is president. Donald Trump is president. And People from the EPA greet me, you know, ahead of this luncheon, and they're like, what are you going to do? And I said, I can give the same talk I was planning to give without mentioning climate change. And they're shocked. And I say, no, 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 I need you to just understand the broad trends of, you know, industry and economy 
and you're going to see. Like, I don't even have to show you my slides. You're just going to see it's going to work. And I stand up in this room and I ask everybody to raise their hand if they have a smartphone. And of course, the whole audience raises their hand. Maybe some of that's economically driven, but, you know, basically everybody in the room is a smartphone. And this is what I asked them. I said, suppose somebody were to come to you today and tell you that, you know, God only knows how much you're spending on your phone package if you have children or teenage children, they have a data package. I can only imagine what your bill is. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, listen, we're going to put an analog phone back in your home and we're going to guarantee you that your bill will only be $25 a month. We're going to make telephone service 100% affordable for everyone. And then what we're going to do is we're going to have an infrastructure bill and we're going to put telephone booths, you know, that you can use with a card or we're not going to go back to quarters. We're going to come up with some kind of electronic telephone booth. And we're going to build telephone booths all across the United States, at train stations, airports, street corners. And we're going to go back so that we're going to eliminate all these horrible, expensive costs from this technology. Raise your hand if you would vote for that bill, for that legislation. And of course, no one raises their hand. Sure. And I say, why didn't you raise your hand? You didn't raise your hand because your smartphone is a superior technology. Even though it's more expensive, it's providing you, you're basically walking around with a computer. Right. An unbelievable computer that also has, you know, GPS navigation. It has all these different services that you're getting. You can watch television on it. It's providing you with all these services that you are not willing to give up to save money. And also all the services that your phone provide are driving jobs and economic activity from all the different things that your telephone can do. Correct. I said, so if we in the United States went back to landline phones and we had telephone booths again, it's not like anybody in China or Brazil or Africa would agree to follow our lead, like because it's a superior technology. And the way we need to think about where we're going in energy is we're going to be able to go to superior technologies, to things that are going to provide services in our households, in our businesses, that are going to be able to do that and not emit carbon. And so why would we agree to stay on an internal combustion car that only uses 30% or 40% of the energy we stick in it, and then the rest of it goes out as waste, heat, and pollution, right? Why would we agree to continue to do that Because someone has developed a vehicle that is much more efficient in terms of using the energy we stick in the battery and also provides us with all kinds of other things, which might include self-navigation and and, and all kinds of other benefits. Um, We're not going to go backwards. Well, it's it's interesting that, you know, you you gave that speech and you, you, you presented that question of going backwards in the context of an EPA meeting. And the reason that's interesting to me is because you're talking about innovation, entrepreneurship coming from the private sector, the iPhone, under the veil of big government. So I guess a question to you is part of this mission in pushing renewables forward, although it's coming from the government, right? I think the government is really, at least here in the United States, is really leading the charge in many ways. Do you think it's the private sector that's going to get us there beforehand? Like, will, will, superior product design 
innovative technology and like just American entrepreneurship get us to this point of, you know, this is better product and you can, there's more utility to it. And that will help move people into ending their use of fossil fuels versus the government forcing it down on industry and on private citizens. You know, let's really talk about the ecosystem because, of course, there are a lot of people. And this, again, you know, you asked me the political question. Some people, if you're a libertarian, you know, your whole thing is it's got to be the private sector. Government gets in the way. And it, and if you're coming maybe from some uh, more left orientation, you know, you're thinking that government needs to do this through regulation. And it's really a mixture in the following way. I mentioned your smartphone. But do you realize, do people actually realize where GPS came from? GPS came from the Pentagon realizing that Russia was ahead of us in satellites. So we had the Sputnik satellite. Now that we are understanding the national security challenge of a satellite on only the Russian side that can do all the things that satellites can do and the United States does not have that capability. So the first thing we had to do is we had to develop the scientific ability to follow that satellite and know where it is and what it's doing. And that was GPS. That is how we got GPS. We got GPS because we were having to follow the Sputnik satellite. So the government fueled that that item. Correct. So there's a role for government to play in R&D and in fostering focused innovation a lot of times, unfortunately, even self-driving vehicles, I don't think people realize all of that came from a Pentagon contest in the Mojave Desert. And all the people we think of who are the famous people who might be doing that at Waymo or might be doing that in some other company, uh, all those people started with this Pentagon contest. So maybe what the Pentagon does is, is geared to national security. What the EPA does is geared towards environmental protection so government has a role to set these priorities to where we're trying to take technology. And absolutely the government, you know, as we did with the Inflation Reduction Act, the government needs to be setting priorities to make environmental protection and the preservation of nature as a key element to what we're trying to give companies incentives to do to innovate uh, and also where government money is going to be spent on innovation. So th that's like, you know, step number one. But, you know, I'm a big believer, you know, China spends like, you know, 10 times more than we do probably on doing the same thing. And they started earlier. So that, you know, was a threat to our economy. And at some level, you know, could even be a threat to our long term national security for these military applications. So but what, we, what do we have going for us here in the United States is that we do have this unbelievably innovative private sector that knows how to commercialize these technologies or might develop technologies that we can't even imagine as a solution. And, you know, I'm teaching a class this semester on the clean technology ecospace and, you know, what are the trends and, and, and what, what is the sort of means of innovation and what's hot today in clean tech and what's not. And, you know, the important thing that we, we had a class on is this new interest, maybe it's not new, it's starting to be, you know, sort of more like more companies are thinking about it, of, you know, expressing yourself as a corporation or as a small business with a mission-driven focus. You know, how do I align uh, how I'm making money 
with a mission-driven focus or an impact SDG-oriented focus. And we have a lot of people, you know, succeeding in business with either a mission or an SDG impact focus. And of course, investors, uh, you and I, when we think about what we want to do with our pension fund, if somebody came to you and told you that I could take your pension money and earn you a better rate of return if we put your money into this mission focused business or we put your money into an impact-oriented business and we could make the same money as owning, you know, ExxonMobil stock or, you know, some other kind of stock. Well, that's really interesting to me as an individual because of my own values. So you're seeing some, you know, we've seen some success stories where the private sector and and the government cooperate. I mean, certainly the Elon Musk Tesla story is remarkable as it relates to, you know, evolving technology to create a, a, you know, a better, more livable planet. Are there any other stories that you can highlight where government and the private sector come together, make an investment, and we've seen some impact like that to move us away from fossil fuels? Well, you know, I mean, of course, the Tesla story was a big win. You know, the government gave a loan to Tesla and, you know, enabled them to have their first manufacturing. So that was an important achievement. But in that same period where people were helping out Tesla, less well known was that U.S. government loan guarantees were given out to developers of utility scale solar. So that's when I'm building a giant solar farm somewhere in the Western United States. Those same loan guarantees also went for wind projects. And one of the things the loan guarantee program did in that period, which saved between 2009 as part of the 2009 stimulus, you know, through 2012, is it at that time, it was a little risky. The technology was still a little untested in terms of how it would perform and whether it would perform, you know, say with battery storage. And because companies and developers had this backing of the U.S. government, they were able to fully finance these giant utility systems in renewables, and they scaled out. Like, they were successful, they made money, they paid the government back in full. And so that meant that now somebody could go out and do that and they don't need a U.S. government loan guarantee. You can just get financing because we know you're going to be able to make money, you know, doing these projects. So... That was another, you know, example of the government partnering with private sector to bring scale up of renewable energy facilities in the United States. But Amy, it's it's interesting when you look at that. Um, there's the, the 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 starting point where private sector and government funds are used as a spark for innovation and entrepreneurship, and now we're seeing an interesting dynamic happening as it relates to um, solar at individuals' homes, right? Like all of a sudden, our strong economy is, you know, hurting a little bit. We're seeing inflation, we're seeing higher interest rates. And as a result, the individual homeowner is a little bit more reluctant to invest in solar. So there's a funny dynamic there where the government can influence entrepreneurship, but then can they thread the needle all the way to the finish line and get the individual homeowner to buy the solar product in, in, in you know, the face of increasing expenses on a, on a you know, inflationary level plus interest rates? So listen, I mean, you have state government, you've got federal government, you know, will give you a tax break 
course, that presumes that you have taxes to take a tax break. They're also grant, like a grant structure that's been sort of set up by the Biden administration for communities that have been underserved historically. Uh, Same thing. But like my story about, you know, the smartphone and what it enabled, we know what's coming. And the question is, you know, how do you set up a business to be profitable to do this? So it's not just getting a solar panel on your house. It's do you have an inverter system, which is the thing that helps your solar panel integrate with your house? You know, can it integrate with your car or with a battery inside your house? And can that serve you? Right. So that could serve you in multiple ways. It could be that it serves you because there's some problem with electricity in the town or the state where you live because of a weather event or some other event. And you still have full electricity, full air conditioning, full, full car charging because of your solar panel. Right. You could actually sell electricity. You know, in some states, they have it set up well where you can actually you don't need all the electricity that you can generate with the panel on your house. So you could actually sell that electricity back to the grid. And therefore your electricity is relatively free because your panel is providing you, they're making you what's called a prosumer. So you're trading electricity. See, I know that Siemens is doing that right now, um, where surplus energy could be traded on chain, on the blockchain in areas, um, I think it's around Bavaria in Germany right now. But I wonder if like the government would ever allow in the United States, the private sector to take control so much of the trade of energy. Well, you know what? Here's a good example. It just happened last week. So Vermont, believe it or not, I mean, we all hear about California and New York City, but actually Vermont is one of the communities that the farthest along on renewable energy. I mean, like 90 to 100% of their generation, but that, you know, includes some imported hydro, but they are pretty much on track for 100% renewable energy generation for the state. They put in a lot of solar, you know, hard to believe because we think of it, you know, they have to come out with a snow thing and take the snow off the solar panels. So it's, you know, hard to envision that Vermont's that far ahead, but but the bottom line is their utility, Green Mountain, uh, just announced that their pilot program where they were leasing batteries for people's homes that have solar panels was successful. And they're proposing that if they were to get approved to spend $1.5 billion putting more batteries strategically in, in homes and businesses across the state, that that could save billions of dollars in repair costs for things like their flooding event or other kinds of weather events that knock out electricity by wire. And and they're proposing this sort of virtual power plant where you aggregate the batteries in multiple locations in people's homes and businesses and so forth as their climate change solution for reliable electricity. And they're showing in numbers, in, in base, you know, brick case, base utility rate numbers, how that's going to be a cheaper solution then try to figure out how to build a natural gas peaking plant or how to cut trees down to make sure the wires are stable and so forth. They have a total plan that does not involve chopping down trees to provide electricity. So Amy, going back to like the ecosystem then, it's kind of interesting because the the folks in Vermont, it seems like culturally they want to fight climate change. So they're motivated, they're solution oriented. What you just described is incredible. But part of the ecosystem 
also includes our, our friends worldwide and even countries like China. And it's my understanding that China is building one new coal-fired power plant every single week. And interestingly, they're the world's biggest emitter of carbon dioxide, and that is getting bigger. And I also understand, you could correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just getting this information from my research, but it's also my understanding that China is still permitted to um, emit a certain amount of pollution as it relates to the Paris Accords. So when we look at the economics of it all, how can we justify, justify using taxpayer dollars to help create a um, more renewable approach to our, our, in our environment here in the United States if countries like China are essentially undercutting the United States investment by continuing to pollute? And, and, you know, we could take it further also. I think it's interesting because I understand that China is the world's biggest provider of renewables right now, of solar, and I think wind as well. But are they doing that for other reasons? I know I no, threw listen, a lot at you. Listen, oh, okay, listen, let, let's, let's dissect the Chinese situation. Yeah. Um, China does have a much bigger renewable energy program than most countries. And they also fund renewable energy construction and equipment, you know, that goes to Africa, that goes to Southeast Asia, even in Latin America. So part of what they have is the problem of just a giant population and how do they, you know, square the knot between pushing everything to renewables and cleaning up and, and, and really not, and really suspending coal. Right. So at least in the last meetings in prior to Glasgow, the United States pushed China along with Europe and other international participants, and they got the Chinese to commit to stop funding coal in other places. So everything's a progression. How do we convince countries to speed up? And, you know, part of what you need to do is a credential to, to really press other countries as part of a global accord to speed up on ending coal and ending emissions is to do it yourself. So you cannot not have a program here in the United States or not have a program in Europe and then go around the world and ask everybody else to do it. You know, it's a collective action problem and committing yourself by example and then leading by example to other nations is part of the credibility, you know, one has to have. But, you know, of course, if all we're doing is eliminating our emissions to make space for somebody else to emit. That's a bad thing. So it takes a tremendous amount of diplomacy to really try to get countries to commit to doing the right thing. Now, Europe has taken a much more aggressive approach. Their approach is if you're China or India or some other place and you think you're going to use coal to produce something that you're going to sell in Europe, we're going to tax you at the border for the carbon that is embedded in your steel that you're sending us or any other thing, whether it's a children's toy or whatever you're sending us, you know, not to start children's toy, but we're going to pick heavy duty products that Europe is going to phase in a carbon border adjustment tax. And that's going to mean that countries have an economic incentive to clean up. And it's going to mean that domestic firms in Germany or in the United States or wherever that this carbon adjustment mechanism is going to apply 
will have an economic advantage. It's going to be like a carbon tariff, right? I'm going to protect those companies that are already cleaning up in Germany or in the UK or wherever by having this carbon border adjustment. So people have thought about how to address that with both a carrot and a stick. Is it working, Amy? Is it is it already implemented in, in Europe and is it working? It's about to be implemented. And honestly, I believe that the European carbon border adjustment just as a threat, right, means that oil companies in the United States that are planning to sell energy to Europe have to worry that that carbon border adjustment will eventually be applied to their shipments. And so they have to clean up their methane that leaks from their operations. I do believe that the Chinese take the carbon border adjustment seriously and understand that they also need to accelerate their policy. And so I I do think that it will be impactful. And I work with governments from other countries, and I can tell you in Brazil, in Indonesia, in South Africa, in countries where we are thinking that they are not ambitious enough on climate, those countries are actively studying and thinking of implementing a carbon price, which of course is something that gives industry the incentive and the compensation to invest in clean innovation, and which has worked well in California and did propel the tech industry even to think about how to make their data centers cleaner. So we're now moving to those kind of, you know, people from Indonesia, from China, from India, from South Africa, from Brazil are coming and looking at what California did and thinking about how to launch their own markets. And, you know, here in the United States, we're like laggards. You know, in our political system, we're just criticizing California for having these environmental policies. But in the end, other countries that we're pointing a finger at are are literally talking about putting in a carbon price, which Europe already has. So, you know, we're not even as far along as Brazil, as Indonesia, as India, in thinking about how to implement a carbon price. South Africa has a carbon tax already. India has a coal tax. So there's a lot of things that the countries we're talking about are already doing that we're not even doing. Right. So we'll so we'll look externally, right? We'll look at at countries all over the world, but you know, we also have the issue of policy change when the executive branch of our government, the president, switches parties, right? So can all of these steps that the Biden administration is currently taking, the investment and, and all of the positive steps towards technology, innovation, renewables, et cetera, be kind of scaled back or, or go backwards if a Republican is in office after this coming election? Well, I like to think, uh, we'll see, you know, time will tell. I like to think that a lot of these policies are going to be like Obamacare. You know, the Republicans talked against Obamacare, talked against Obamacare, but in the end, you know, people need health insurance. And so when the Republicans did come in, they didn't actually rescind people's health insurance because that would have been unbelievably unpopular. Almost. I mean, Senator McCain really stopped that, right? It was like almost single-handedly, if you remember. Right. But there are a lot of red states. There are Ohio, the deep south on the east eastern part of our country, uh, I'm trying to think of other states, Arizona, there are a lot of states 
that are getting the manufacturing plants for clean energy, you know, even in Texas, I mean, Elon Musk and Tesla, they not only have a factory now there, but but Elon Musk lives in Austin. Yeah, it's right? a big deal. And I know he set up a, a mega factory in Nevada too, so. Correct. And, and you know, you have um, Texas, for all their, you know, talking about natural gas, and, you know, Governor Abbott is, you know, pounding his fist on the table about fossil fuels. The bottom line is Texas is putting in a giant amount of batteries to help support their electricity distribution and transmission systems. And uh, part of the thing that's keeping them from having a blackout this year versus last year are those batteries. And, you know, there are Tesla batteries and other kinds of batteries. And you've got different states around the country, Oklahoma, Texas, are putting in energy innovation hubs that are literally looking at things like sustainable aviation fuel, looking at you know, battery and other kinds of electricity technologies. So there is a disconnect between what politicians say because they think that'll give them a great meme soundbite and make people like them and what's actually happening on the ground. And, you know, my whole thing in thinking about myself as an energy expert is how do I get people to understand what these technologies are bringing them how positive they can be in weather crises and in, in, in our national defense. Like, how can we understand how this is shaping in a positive way, in a way that I, I, I will just ignore, you know, what some politician is saying, because it doesn't even match and jive up with the reality. Do you think it's because the politicians don't really understand it as well as as the people like you who are on the ground and experts and impacting an entrepreneur in the private sector? Do you think that's part of the problem? You know, I, I'm telling anecdotal stories, a true story. So there's an organization called the Aspen Institute that's sort of like a think tank and they have progressive programs and they make these congressional education programs. And like your question, I thought I spent a lot of time, you know, writing some white paper document and then sending it to everybody I knew who worked on the Hill and, and, and getting the ear of congressmen and going to visit and doing all these things. And then one year I went on this Aspen Institute uh, meeting with, uh, you know, 30 or 40 different congressmen and senators from, you know, different parts of the aisle, different parts of the country. And what the Aspen Institute does, does, which is, you know, quite good, is they have experts like me come and come for these programs and then different meals and coffee breaks and excursions, they seat you with different people. So you actually meet and talk to everyone. And one of the things I discovered in doing that program, which I commend, it's a great program, is that these congressmen and senators were much more informed than I thought they would be. Great. That's and good to that hear. They were cynically saying stuff that their constituents thought to be popular with their constituents. I hate to say it, but that so politics was what I gets drew. in the way. Politics gets in the way. And so then I decided that for me, that meant that I had a partner with different kinds of organizations. So I actually, you know, have had over the years, I had a partner with the AAA Auto Club where I traveled around with them and talked to their membership about how fuel economy standards and electric vehicles were not a negative thing for drivers. And I had to have a whole education program together with the AAA to really get it so that the Congress people 
and senators would speak favorably about using energy innovation technology in the automobile sector, and that way we could change the politics on the ground. And if you think about it, as early as 2007, which is you know kind of when I started on that campaign, still working on it, but you know we passed a great bill to you know do these ambitious things for fuel economy in the United States. And of course, now we have more programs to help people move into electric vehicles. And a lot of that came from really just helping the public understand what is the real technical aspect or, you know, what are we talking about product-wise and, and helping people understand. I mean, I just saw a recent report, you know, people said, oh, you know, all kinds of people are going to lose their jobs in the car industry when we switch to electric cars. And now the new statistics are that actually that, no, it's turned out the opposite right? That actually takes more people to do this, even with the robotics that's being used. I mean, time and, and time and, again, and, as innovation and technology advances, we've, I mean, we saw this shift from horse and buggy to automotive. I know that we actually started automotive in electric, not with gas. We see that issue over and over again. People are scared of change and people are afraid to embrace technology. As I've written in my book, Energy's Digital Future, a lot of people were employed in the New England, in the you know U.S. East Coast, in hay. Like that hay was a major employer of people. Right, right. Right, and, and, and no one would say to themselves today, geez, if only <laughs> we'd have stayed with my work in hay. Right. Um, you know, you know I mean, I mean people evolved. have so much. Yeah, we've evolved beyond but, hay and worrying the- about hay jobs. But how important is it then when, you, when we go back to the bigger ecosystem and we, we look again just on the international landscape, how important is it for us to bring or influence um, the poorer countries, for example, to, to bring them along? For example, you mentioned South Africa, but let's look at the continent of Africa in its entirety. So I found some interesting data that I'd like to share with you. Of the 52 low and middle income countries that have defaulted on their debts this past, you know, within the past 12 to 18 months, 23 of them are actually located in Africa. And as a result of rising interest rates, Africa's debt repayments will surge to 62 billion this year, up 35% from 2022. So to put this figure into context, Africa is now paying more in debt service than the estimated $50 billion a year the Global Center on Adaptation says is it needs to invest in climate resilience. I know that Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, recently went to Africa for the Africa Climate Summit to address the climate crisis and these related topics. But how do we get these poor nations that don't have the money and frankly might prioritize issues like their health, like vaccinations ahead of, you know, investing in renewables. Like how does that, how do we figure that piece of it out? It's very complicated. So let me just say uh, one thing. Let me point out something about renewables in Africa. And then I'm going to talk to you about climate justice and finance, because we have a very unjust international system for climate finance. So many countries in Africa that have been made more progress achieving their SDG goals and providing universal electrification 
have done so with hydroelectric power and geothermal power. Kenya has a huge success. I think it's something like 40% of the population gets their energy from, from geothermal, right? And, and hydro, you know, we have these African power pools where electricity is produced and traded among a group of African states. And a lot of that is hydro-related. There are countries that have achieved electrification in their nation through hydro. And so it's not correct to believe that Africa has maintained whatever economic activity they have by using coal or by using natural gas. The country that has the most energy poverty, so the most citizens who don't have energy services, is Nigeria, a country that literally flares natural gas into the sky because of the corruption and inefficiency of their energy sector, right? They literally burn the natural gas into the sky. I've seen the of images. It to their, right. So, yeah, it's easy to look so, it up. I've seen the images. Okay. So, but, but the other thing we know is that among the countries that are most globally vulnerable to the catastrophe of climate change, whether that's drought or heat wave or flooding, we know that Africa, a lot of the different countries in Africa are the most vulnerable countries, and some of them are the least able, both capacity-wise and finance-wise, to provide adaptation services, going even beyond Africa's contribution to global carbon emissions is unbelievably small. Like I said, not only do they already use a lot of renewable energy, but their economic activity in some countries is limited. So they're only like three or 4% of global emissions. Like we're not worried so much about where they're going, except in the fact that we want them like us to have their future economic planning be tied to a less carbon intensive pathway. But what we have is a very unjust system where, like you mentioned, if you're already an indebted country, you know, people talk like, oh, we're going to do it through green bonds. Well, none of these countries, you know, I shouldn't say none. A lot of these countries won't be able to raise green bonds because either they don't have the intellectual and institutional capacity to do the legal and, and finance intensive work that it takes to, you know, put together a green bond offering. But most green bonds are also offered not in local currency. Only like 3% of the green bond market is in local currencies because of the currency risk. So most of the countries in Africa can't even participate in the green bond market. They're not going to be able to raise capital through the international banking system. And so we need to, re we need to completely rethink and rechange how we do global climate finance and indeed, I've done a study for the UN Commission on Africa that shows that even for something like the Adaptation Fund and some of these UN-oriented funds and donor aid that comes from the OECD, it's not in Africa going to the most vulnerable nations. Some of the money, a lot of the money, is going to countries that already have capacity, like Morocco, where people have already have economic trading relationships, and the countries in sub-Saharan Africa, in East Africa, and other parts of Africa that have no capacity, who are suffering most from the impact of climate change, are literally getting zero funds. And we need to change that. So and, how you is know, that, though? Why, why is that, though? Like, what, like, who's controlling the disbursement of these monies? 
because donor countries decide how to disperse. And if I'm a donor country, you know, I, I can't prove this, but, you know, you have a relationship with a country and you have trade relations or you have political relations. And so it's easier for you to distribute donor aid to countries you're already dealing with. And so if you're some country that nobody wants the metals in your country and nobody wants the oil in your country and nobody wants uh, to trade goods and services and manufacturing with you, or they don't thinking that we're going to build a wire from your country to bring solar energy to Europe, it's hard to get the attention. And you might not even have the capacity to apply to UN institutions that would give you funding. You have to be able to assess where you want to spend the money. You have to be able to develop projects where you're going to come up with flood control or come up with sustainable agriculture projects. And then also when the money's dispersed, it also, I mean, most countries that we surveyed in this study, they want assistance in agriculture and not all of the aid is going to agriculture. So if a lot of the aid is going to develop renewable energy, but people need aid to do agriculture, that's a disconnect there too. So it's, it's, super complicated because it's not just the obvious negative impact on these marginalized communities. There's a deeper level as it relates to even giving them the opportunity to dig themselves out of where they are today. Correct. And the other thing that people miscalculate, so one of the things that you know fossil fuel companies say is that um, we don't understand, we're going to keep using oil because countries are going to develop and they're going to need the oil to go forward. And they're not taking into account how badly climate change curbs GDP growth. So take a country like Pakistan that had those massive floods last year. Their GDP growth was cut, you know, substantially by those floods. And it's not going to be solved in one year. Like that lack of progress, that's going to go forward academic research shows for 10 years just from that one event, right? But then they're going to have continual events. And I say to people, you know, when you project how many Indonesians are going to have a car or how many people in India or Pakistan are going to have a car, that presumes that you're not going to have the infrastructure of roads and bridges knocked out by climate change and that people are going to be able to afford a car. But maybe if we don't do something about climate change, none of that is going to happen. So even these projections about what we're going to need in the future are incorrect because we're going to have to change our energy infrastructure and how we put it together because we have to respond to the challenges that climate change is going to create. So then there are other challenges that are at play too that are unforeseeable, Amy. Like, for example, the war in Israel currently. Like, what, what kind of an impact does war have? as it relates to not just the obvious infrastructural concerns, but overall carbon emissions, climate change, et cetera. Like, how would, you, how would you describe what's happening in Israel now? And then like how this will play itself out specifically as it relates to climate change issues over time? So I think one of the most frightening elements, you know, beyond the human tragedy one of the most frightening elements is this idea that a group of people could mobilize an invasion of another country inside their borders and attack civilians brutally. 
And, you know, I've seen news analysis where literally people in South Korea are worried about North Korea using the same kind of techniques against their citizens, right? So it's not, you know, people might see this as some isolated thing that's not going to affect them. But if we don't, as the international leadership and countries, stand against this kind of warfare, the consequences for society could be just unbelievable. And so we have to think broadly about just these means of war and and the lack of acceptability of this kind of attack on civilians. And then we need to take it a step further and we need to think about what are the driving features. And so a lot of people have focused on the Palestinian question. And I'm not saying that that's not a big piece of it, but you have to go, you know, open the camera lens wider than that. Because in the run-up to this horrific event, the United States was making incredible progress on organizing a peace agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel that was going to extend to progress on the West Bank and agreements about settlements and pathways for statehood for for Palestinians. So the greater context of this big agreement that the United States was really making progress on was providing assistance to Saudi Arabia for having a civilian nuclear power program. And who would be against that? Iran. Because Iran would be concerned that Saudi Arabia would attain nuclear capability. And so I think we need to step back with the wider lens and think about the motivations for Iran and others to not see the United States have a security agreement with Israel and Saudi Arabia and the other nations of the Gulf that would include United States assistance for nuclear power and and then a security arrangement for all of those countries. Because that's that issue goes beyond how does Hamas feel about the state of society on the Gaza Strip. There are much bigger geopolitical factors at play for Iran that was maybe they considered that an existential threat to have all those countries in an alliance and with nuclear capability and a, and a, and a U.S. security back. And that would have been a big win for the United States. So maybe China and Russia don't want the United States to have a big win, right? And then, you know, with implications for North Korea. So it's a much bigger picture than just the unbelievable human tragedy between these two communities in Israel and the Gaza Strip. So when you look at like the macro, there, there are like a lot of macro issues that people are not discussing right now. You mentioned a lot of these nuclear-powered countries during this dialogue. You're talking about China, Russia, North Korea, which might have nuclear energy, right? Um, Say, Iran. Let's make it. Let's make. Hold on. Go back because you want to make a distinction between nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. Okay, because I'm not saying that we're given the Saudis nuclear weapons, so we have to be tactful. So you have to say the context of people going to nuclear power versus the nuclear states like China, India, Russia, who have actual nuclear weapons, and North Korea that has 
I guess they have nuclear weapons they're trying to develop. Perhaps, right? Perhaps. So, you know, when you look at these macro issues, I think there's the macro issue of nuclear capability as it relates to Russia, China, the United States. We need to think of perhaps North Korea, Iran, perhaps Saudi Arabia. Then there's the economic thing that's at play, right, with the energy business coming through as well. And I think the world is probably looking at the United States right now as being a little bit vulnerable because we have um, the Russia-Ukraine thing happening. Now we have this Middle East thing happening. People speculate that China-Taiwan is going to happen. Who knows if you know North Korea does what, what you had alluded to. Um, that, coupled with the fact that our debt to GDP is, I think, at 120% right now. Inflation is high. Like We're spread thin right now. This is a real chaotic time period. And I wonder if we should be concerned more than, than you know, in the details. Here in New York City, so many people are afraid right now that you know, uh, a cell is going to you know, hit us um, or, or, or whatever it might be. But you know, I, I'm not going to marginalize these, these micro issues, but the, at a macro level, there seems to be a lot at play as it relates to who's holding the power, who's holding the nuclear power, who's holding the economic power, the energy power. There's a lot more at play than I think meets the eye. You know, it's a very dangerous time. And like you say, there's just a lot of hot spots that we might have thought were dormant. And we were 100% focused on the conflict in Europe. And now all of a sudden, there's this concern that you could have more than one front providing a challenge at once. And then the really frightening thought, like what if those different societies collaborated with each other against democratic society? So, I mean, it's a very dangerous time. It's going to require unbelievably skilled diplomacy. It also is going to require some resolve. So I have to show whether I'm the United States or NATO or, you know, Japan and South Korea or even, you know, other countries in Africa and Latin America that are not aligned but but have, you know, influence globally. I have to have a credible deterrent for all of mankind in thinking about how to show that some very small interested party can't determine the outcomes for all of us. And it's going to take a tremendous amount of resolve that is both diplomatic and also military. Because I have to show, if people believe that there's no possibility that I'm going to engage militarily, then I don't have enough of a deterrence, right? So I have to 100% focus on diplomacy, but I do think when President Biden sent the fleet to the East Med, like showing that we're committed to democracy and we're committed to peaceful negotiation, whether it's territorial conflict or human rights conflict or whatever kind of conflict that needs to be resolved, showing that we're both committed to diplomacy but we're going to defend, we're going to defend the world we want to live in. That is not a chaotic world where authoritarian groups just randomly, you know, bomb civilians in Ukraine or randomly 
slice off the heads of babies in Israel or, you know, whatever is the, you know, horror of the, of the day. You know, we, we have to think through what is the best way to achieve diplomacy and where does that diplomacy have to be backed up with strength and, and power on a different level. How long do you think it will take for us to get to the table where there is diplomacy? I mean, it seems so far away now. I think there's active diplomacy, but I mean, the first thing that has to be evaluated is who stands where, you know, where does China really stand? Because China had spent a lot of time on the diplomacy between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Was that a smokescreen or not? I mean, are they sincere? And if they're sincere, what actions are they going to take now? Now would be a good time for China to say that they're for peace and stability globally but they were stockpiling oil since May. And some people had speculated that they were buying all that oil, even though prices were rising, because they were trying to, in a way that seemed more covert, help Russia. Amy, thank you so much for all your time over the past two, two days. I really do appreciate it. Listen, Mark, thank you for doing this podcast and thank you for having me. I know your time is very important. So thank you so much for joining me today. For ongoing insight surrounding these important topics, you can join the conversation on my social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Mark Beckman. And to sign up for my newsletter on Substack, you can find me at markbeckman.substack.com. To make sure you don't miss a show, be sure to subscribe to Some Future Day across all major platforms worldwide including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Special thanks to New York University for producing Some Future Day, and a big shout-out to my producer extraordinaire, John Boomhofer, for being patient and always encouraging me to push through. Thanks a lot, John. Have a great day. 